In this interview, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Mark Lewis. Mark is a neuroscientist, professor, best-selling author, and one of the world's leading experts on the neuroscience of addiction. In his academic work, he has authored or co-authored more than 50 journal articles and for many years was a professor of developmental psychology at the University of Toronto. In recent years, he has focused on making his work more accessible to a wider audience through public talks and interviews. He is the author of two best-selling books on addiction, Memoirs of an Addicted Brain and The Biology of Desire, a book which Dr. Gabor Mate argues effectively refutes the disease model of addiction. In this wide-ranging conversation, we cover Mark's background and his own early struggles with addiction, why traumas, particularly in early life, often lead to addictive behavior, what happens in the brain during addiction, why internal family systems therapy offers an effective solution, and how developing a stronger connection to your future self can help overcome addiction. Discovering Mark's work has completely changed my own view on addiction, and I think after listening to this interview, it could do the same for you. So I, I had a lot of fun recording this. Uh, Mark's a really interesting character, and I think you're going to really enjoy this one. All right, Mark, welcome to the show. Uh, for anybody that isn't aware of your work and what you do, could you tell us a bit about your background, please? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, thanks for inviting me, and it's a pleasure to talk to uh, an audience across the sea, British audience in particular, uh, which I haven't done for a while. And um, let's see, where do I start? Uh, undergraduate in California, I lived there, then moved to Toronto, got into psychology, took some undergrad courses, got into graduate psychology. I had a lot of problems with drugs at the time. I had a serious addiction, uh, got into some crime, got kicked out of grad school, spent a few years uh, getting my life together, got back into grad school, got a PhD, became a professor in psychology and uh, did uh, cognitive child developmental psychology for about 10, 10 or 15 years, then switched over to neuroscience and really specialized in neuroscience um, for the next 10 or 15 years. And that's pretty much it. Since then, I, well, since then I've, kind of, I've been moving away from academia, writing books for the popular press. I've been interested and involved in addiction studies, so to speak, for the last oh, at least 10 years. And uh, I've become much more interested in writing for regular people than writing journal articles for, you know, for academics lately, more and more <laughs> as time goes by. Very cool. So it seems like you've been on quite a journey. And I'm just curious to ask, you know, why have you spent your life um, researching and understanding, you know, the neuroscience of addiction? Um, why has that been such a, a strong interest for you? Well, it came back to me, uh, actually, for quite a long time, I didn't think much about it. But most of my training was in developmental psychology, trying to understand how personality and emotional uh, um, issues develop, how psychopathology develops, seeing everything kind of as a developmental sequence or progression. And it occurs to me, and it occurred to me then that uh, addiction is, is also a, a developmental pathway. I mean, you don't just suddenly one day wake up and you're an addict and you're not born an addict, so you must develop into an addict uh, one way or another. And so that was interesting intellectually. And I also, I wanted to write a book about the brain that normal people could read and understand and enjoy thinking about the brain as kind of almost a character in a, in a, in a, in a novel. 
Uh, and uh, I thought, well, what am I going to write about? And my wife suggested, well, why don't you write about the days of your addiction? Because that was, you know, that's a pretty interesting story. So I thought, okay. And, and that's when it started. That's when I really got started researching the neuroscience. Uh, There's a lot of it out there. A lot of people studying brains, the brains of people who have addictions uh, to substances, to behaviors, food addictions, eating disorders, and all the rest of it. So that became quite, quite involving. Cool, cool. And how has your training as a developmental psychologist influenced your view of addiction? Because you came at this from a very different perspective than most people before you would have would have done. Is that fair to say? Oh, for sure. Yeah. <clears throat> well, having been there myself for quite a few years in my 20s, uh, I knew what it was like from the inside. Uh, and as a developmental psychologist and neuroscientist, I started to get a sense of what it was like from a much more objective standpoint. So putting those two perspectives together, I think was kind of been my, you know, my approach, my calling card. And, and that had a fair bit of appeal to the community, to people in addiction, people who study addiction, people who treat addiction. So I found a niche kind of right there at that, at that interface. Cool, cool. Well, one of the things I really admire about about you, Mark, is that you're very open about sharing your struggles and the, the things you've been through in the past. And, you know, you've achieved incredible things um, through your, your work, uh, but you've also been, been down in some pretty dark places as well. And, you know, I just want to give people some context about, you know, some of the struggles you've been through. Like, I, I, I think I read somewhere that you struggled with heroin heroin and morphine addiction at one point and yeah. you've been in some really low places so maybe could you give us a bit, a bit of context there as well we just give people some some more of a background if that's okay yeah it's really fine i'm so used to telling that story now that it just doesn't bother me at all at first it was a bit embarrassing you know colleagues said you did what you know i don't care anymore um and i think you know the the, the good side as you suggest is that it gives people perspective and hope and gives them a kind of inside insider's understanding that addiction is not permanent. And in fact, the statistics show pretty clearly that people who are addicted to almost anything recover. I mean, the majority recover from any addiction, substance addictions, behavior addictions, and so forth. So for me, it was in my twenties, it started when I was around 18. I'd, I'd come out of a kind of a repressive boarding school. I was miserable and depressed and my family moved to California and my parents then split up immediately. I was kind of, you know, lost and uh, found drugs. And it was, you know, late 60s, early 70s. And back then in California, Berkeley, California, there was a lot of drugs. And so, you know, I, I fell into it. And uh, that kind of remained part of my life for quite a, for three or four years. Then when I moved back to Toronto, I, uh, I got married and it was a very unhappy marriage. It was just a bad marriage, like good friends, not good uh, partners. And, uh, and I started breaking into, into places, into medical centers and pharmacies and so forth and you know, doing crime. And I, I was really pretty nuts for a while and started and just kept doing those kinds of drugs for a while. And then I got uh, arrested, convicted, kicked out of school, as I said, and really, started working on myself and started trying everything I could do to, to get past it. And I, it took a few years, but finally around the age of 30, I quit drugs for good. So that's, um, that was that story. I mean, it was some pretty dark moments as you can imagine. I'd say so. 
Um, <laughs> so th- there are a lot of myths out there around addiction. Um, I'd be curious to ask you, what, which of these myths do you find most frustrating? Like which really gets on your nerves? Yeah, well, that's easy. It's, it's uh, the disease model of addiction. The idea that addiction is a disease. I, I've really spent the last almost 10 years of my professional life uh, battling against that perspective. And I get where it comes from. And you could think of it as an improvement over the idea, previous idea that addicts were just bad, nasty people, self-indulgent, you know, uh, weak-willed sinners and whatever. That was kind of the standing view for most of the 20th century. And then along comes the disease model and says, well, we've got some brain imaging studies that actually show that, you know, addiction is a brain disease, so it's not really your fault and you shouldn't be blamed. And that had some appeal to a lot of people who are struggling with addiction. The downside is that it makes addiction into something which you really can't do anything about because if you have a disease, you just pretty much have to follow doctor's orders. And uh, it was considered, it is considered a chronic disease, which, which kind of quashes the uh, optimism and sense of empowerment that helps people overcome their addiction. So I, I became aware of all the downsides of the model, uh, the disease model. I get how it works systemically in economically in places like the UK and US and Canada, you've got a certain amount of money to allocate to whatever, methadone uh, programs and so forth. And so you have to give people a label in order for them to have access to those resources. Okay, fine, that's, that's a socioeconomic issue, right? But it doesn't get to the heart of addiction, not at all. It's just, it just doesn't. So that became my, um, shall we say my debating opponent. And gradually in the last few years, the, the field has been moving more in the direction I think that I espouse, not, not only me, but a few other people as well, um, that addiction is a, it, it is a developmental process. It's a question of learning. It's learning habits for relief and uh, mostly relief. Um, and uh, they're very deep habits. They're very entrenched and it's hard to stop. And there are brain changes in addiction, but then when you look into the brain in some detail, you realize that the brain changes all the time, whenever you're learning anything. So when you're learning addiction, it's not that surprising that there are brain changes. So I, I kind of followed that line of thinking to its logical conclusions and uh, tried to uh, you know, refute that model, both at the level of people's lives and feelings, but also at the level of logic, the, the actual logic of the neuroscience so that they, people would use to back up that model. Well, one of the things I think I've heard you say is that actually um, believing that addiction is a disease, believing in the disease model is actually a predictor of relapse. Is that, is that true? Is that right? Yeah, it, it is. And there's about, last time I looked was a few years ago, there were five or six studies out there which, which showed that exactly that. There is a possible confound because if you are more deeply addicted, you might be more likely to see it as a disease, in which case the cart you know, and the horse are in different positions. In other words, it's the severity that might drive the belief rather than the belief driving the severity. But it seems pretty, I've, I've had a, a blog that's concerned with addiction that's been around for about 10 years. And I've heard thousands, literally thousands of stories of people saying, you know, I couldn't get control of it as long as I felt it was a disease. It seemed like I just had to see myself as an addict and 
you know, and follow instructions and be um, a patient in a, in a medical establishment, whatever it was. And it, the, the idea that the disease model quashed empowerment and optimism now it seems really clear based on the stats, based on personal stories, based on all, all kinds of stuff. For sure, for sure. Um, and another thing, uh, is there such thing as an addictive personality? Yeah, everybody asks that. And it is a, it's a you know, popular myth. No, there isn't. <laughs> uh, do you want the short answer or the long answer? The short answer is fine. I just want, I just want to tell <laughs> Because uh, I hear that quite a bit. Um, I'll tell you what, one thing. I'll just make it quick. It, what we see is that people who have uh, impulsive personality dispositions, which are partly genetic, are more likely to become addicted. People who have uh, introverted personality styles, who tend to be shy and you know uh, and so forth, also are more likely to become addicted. Those are at opposite ends of the personality spectrum, but they both have higher chances of becoming addicted. If you have a very ugly nose, you probably have a higher chance of becoming addicted or bad teeth. I mean, it's like anything that, you know, makes life more uncomfortable is going to increase your chances. So no, there's not one particular style okay. or okay. Yeah, genetic disposition that, that cool. leads to addiction. Cool. Okay. So now I'd like to get into um, some of the kind of root causes of addiction and Something that might be interesting to discuss would be would be trauma. What what role do you think trauma plays in addiction? What's the what's the link there? Yeah, so there there's a lot of agreement on that. Um, e even those who espouse the disease model recognize it. The stats are really clear. Um, one of the bigger and most influential studies was uh, is called the ACE study. ACEs adverse childhood experiences. If you score high in adverse childhood experiences, which, think, which are things like abuse, neglect, abuse could be physical, sexual, or emotional, uh, a rough parental divorce, a parent in prison, there's a number of factors. They all predict to addiction, they all do. So the, and also we know that uh, veterans that come back from various wars and so forth have a much higher chance of becoming addic addicted because of more recent trauma. And adolescence is often traumatic. So it's not just early trauma. It's trauma at any point in the lifespan. It, it will leave you with scars, I mean, with anxiety and depression. And then the anxiety and depression, as far as I can tell, that's the bridge. I mean, that's what then makes uh, drug use, for example, or drinking excessively uh, um, much more beneficial, much more relaxing, much more important to be able to calm yourself down and regulate your emotions and so forth. And that's why people with traumas tend to fall into it much more easily. And was this the case for you as well? Because you went through a tough time with the boarding school and the parents' divorce. Like, do you think that was the, some of the factors that led to your addiction Absolutely. in early life? Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Cool. Cool. I mean, it's a lot. Of, it's, you know, obviously it's not a one one to one correlation, but uh, people who can go somewhere and deal with their trauma and say, okay, I, I've got all these freaky emotions and I'm depressed half the time or most of the time and don't know what to do about it. If they can find some kind of uh, connection, relief, therapy, whatever it is in their, in their environment, they're much less likely to turn to substances, for example. But, but yeah, for me at that age, I wasn't uh, wasn't able to find those kinds of resources. So drugs were 
came in pretty handy. Yeah, and it's it, is it is it kind of like the the addiction is sort of like a way to disassociate from from the pain you're experiencing in the present. It's sort of a way to take yourself away from unfavorable circumstances and kind of temporarily escape from from the difficulties of of what you're going through. Is that is that accurate enough? Or yeah, for sure, that's exactly it. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the two main classes of, of uh, shall we say, psychological issues or disturbances are anxiety and depression. They, they, they're both very painful, but in somewhat different ways. And uh, drugs and alcohol definitely relieve both. both. I mean, certain drugs like opiates uh, diminish anxiety a lot for, you know, whatever it is, several hours. So that, that's a no-brainer, no pun intended. Uh, and, uh, you know, and if, and depression, well, cocaine, the stimulants are particularly useful for making you feel kind of shiny and bright and competent and uh, those kinds of feelings. So they're pretty helpful for people with, with uh, certain kinds of depression. So yeah, it's all about feeling better. It's just all about feeling better. That's it. Um. I'm really curious about the the context, how context um, and certain environments might might lead to addiction as well. And maybe here we could talk about um, things like Rat Park. And also, I'd be curious to ask about the work of Michael Chandler. He's done some work with, uh, indig- is it, I, I'm going to get the, the wording wrong here, but Indigenous or Native Tribes in, in Canada. Is that right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, sure. Um, Rat, Rat Park is a study that came out, when was it, the early 80s, maybe? Uh, that was, um, uh, what's his name, Bruce? His last name is escaping me. Uh, it'll come back. And, and it was a cool set of studies. He was at the University of British Columbia, and he found that when rats were raised separately, in, individually in steel cages, um, they, uh, they were more likely to consume morphine when it was available than rats who were raised socially. Uh, like quite a few to a cage, especially, the, I mean, they had all kinds. Rat Park was basically a nice place for rats to live and grow up. There was wood shavings and toys and stuff to do and other rats to play with. And they would, they would uh, reject the morphine. They just didn't want it. They would, they would drink water instead of drinking the morphine solution. Uh, and the, the conclusion that these guys uh, came to, Bruce Alexander is his name, uh, was pretty straightforward that, you know, if you feel socially fulfilled and uh, are connecting to your environment in a way that's natural and normal for your species, then being on a drug doesn't add anything and in fact probably subtracts. So obviously then that, that idea became, uh, was, was debated quite a bit. And, um, but it also became a model for uh, the phenomenon of veterans, American, mostly veterans that came back from Vietnam in the, I guess, 70s, 70s. Uh, and many of whom had, uh, many of whom were addicted to heroin in Vietnam. And when they got back to the States, a lot of them stopped, they just stopped. So the parallel is pretty, pretty obvious, right? Uh, and and that's Rad Park in a nutshell. That's it. Um, 
I think it works. I think it makes a lot of sense. You don't really want to be, you know, especially with opiates, you don't want to be like half there or half alert if you're actually having a reasonably good time with people, with people, with those around you. Uh, so that's that. The, 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 um, Chandler's work with Indigenous people in Canada, was, it's really fascinating. It, it's, it's quite complex in certain ways. The punchline is that um, you need a certain amount of cultural coherence. So it's not just the individual experience, it's the individual within the family, within the culture that, that matters and that uh, determines the kind of environment, psychosocial environment you, you live in. So he, he studied tribes of uh, native people in Western Canada. And he, he found that in some of these communities that the suicide rate was, was incredibly high, like 500 times the national average. And in other communities, the suicide rate was zero. And he wanted to figure out why, What's, how on earth could, could there be such enormous differences? Um, and he started interviewing the, uh, the teens, the young people in these various communities. And he found that in the communities where the suicide rate was high, he would ask them questions like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Do you want to get married? Do you want to have kids? What kind of job do you think you're going to get? Where do you want to live? They couldn't really answer. They had no sense of themselves as people with an identity, uh, uh, you know, with a direction, with a future. Whereas in the communities where the suicide rate was zero, the kids were able to talk about themselves and their plans and their goals and uh, their dreams and their wishes. So that's the first layer. The next layer is that the people, uh, the, the, the kids in the high suicide communities, the communities themselves were completely, uh, um, shall we say, decimated by mainstream North American culture. They, they were no longer tribal councils or tribal elders. They'd lost their language. They'd lost their customs. They're eating at McDonald's and watching TV all day, right? And so, and in the communities where the suicide rate was zero, they had maintained a lot of their, their culture. And so there was a sense of solidness and we know who we are as a culture. Folded around the kids' sense of, I know who I am as a person. And those are the ones who, who um, were in good shape psychologically. And the other ones, they were not in good shape. They, they were killing themselves like in huge numbers and, or, and also like taking substances like uh, gasoline, which you call petrol, um, ways of getting high that are intrinsically destructive that people know are just killing their bodies and causing nervous system damage and they didn't care. They just kept doing it because they, they had no sense of who, what their lives were about. That, that was really the lesson that Chandler uh, brought, to, brought to the public. That, that kind of makes me wonder about can sort of strengthening your, your connection to your, your cultural heritage and your roots just for everyday people. I wonder, could that lead to greater well-being? Like just having a stronger sense of um, where you come from, your ancestors, and just sort of having that like, I don't know, you would feel like you may, maybe feel like you're less cut off from the world around you, if, if that makes sense. What yeah. do you think about that? Yeah, I think it, I think it makes a lot of sense. It's, it's interesting to think about how that works, but I assume it works through the family. Kids are very influenced by their, you know, immediate family. 
and the coherence and happiness of the family depends on their sense of being embedded in, in a community that where they belong, where it makes sense for them. I've, I've just been uh, watching The Crown like everybody else, right? You guys watch The Crown as well? Really I haven't that? seen it, but I've heard it's great. Is it worth a watch? Oh, it's great. It's fabulous. Fabulous drama, yeah. They, they say that it's not entirely accurate, but it's certainly you learn a lot of history and you have to uh, recognize that it is somewhat fictionalized, but it's, it, it is great. And anyway, so uh, I've learned a lot about how the, um, uh, the English mainstream kind of invaded the culture in Wales and in other places like Scotland and uh, in Ireland, and obviously in Northern Ireland, and how difficult that was for those communities to kind of recover from that cultural domination and probably led to all kinds of social ills, including addiction. I don't know about that for a fact, but that would strike me as the same kind of phenomenon that the Chandler would be talking about. Yeah, for sure. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, so I think a good friend of yours, uh, Johan Hari, um, he, he spoke He spoke at the Wigan University before. He's, he's, he's just a great guy. Um, but he wrote this book um, called Lost Connections. He's wrote Chasing the Scream as well, which focuses on addiction. But he's also yeah. got this book called Lost Connections. And it's all about um, uncovering the unexpected causes of depression and anxiety. And one of these one of these lost connections is a disconnection from, I think it's a disconnection from a hopeful future, a hopeful or a secure future. Right. And some of the work you've done in addiction seems to suggest that. And addicts seem to have trouble from to think in terms of time and they can't really think beyond that day. They, they live in like this eternal present. Um, yeah. Can you maybe tell us a bit more about that and why that's important? Yeah, sure. That's, um, it's kind of insidious um, and, and a bit complicated, but when you're full, <laughs> See, now I, want to, now I want to start talking about IFS, internal family systems, which we might get to later. We'll get to that, yeah. Okay, but, but let's just say, put it simply, the, the part of us that wants to just get high, it's impulsive, it cares about the moment, it's just, I, I can't stand feeling like this any longer. I just really want to get high. I don't give a shit about tomorrow. I don't give a shit about next week. I just want to get high. Okay, fine. So you get, you get into the habit of thinking in very small units of time, the immediate present. And you get out of the habit of thinking in terms of the future, which most young people actually do quite naturally, right? Um, so uh, that's part of it. And there's also the recognition that if you really get strung out or become a real alcoholic, if it gets quite serious, you realize that the future is not looking particularly bright. And you start to, in some sense, accept that. And you don't really have a place to go. There's no sense of how am I going to get through this? If I'm an ad, I've been an addict for the last five years. I'm probably going to be an addict for the next five years. There's a kind of logic to that, which also dissuades you from thinking about the future very much. So, so there's, there's a few things. And one more thing I'll just mention. There's a, a psychologists study this process called um, delay discounting, which uh, delay discounting means that any, any reward or goodness or uh, um, valuable outcome that is delayed into the future uh, is diminished, is discounted in its perceived value. It's diminished in its 
you know, whatever's good, like for a typical experiment, they'll give you choices between, do you want one euro, pound, dollar, whatever today, or five euros in a week, or, you know, 10 euros in three weeks. And most people will choose immediate rewards that are worth less than long-term rewards that are worth more. And they'll do that more and more the longer the delay. And it's just the way our brains work. It's a mammalian thing. It has to do with uh, a neurochemical called dopamine, which focuses our attention on the immediate. And if you look at anything that has to do with addiction in any magazine or journal that has any science in it, dopamine's gonna come up. Dopamine is the main perpetrator. It's the, uh, it's the neurochemical that attaches us to immediate rewards. That's what it is. And when people get uh, when their lives become dominated by wishing to, to, you know, to take a substance or gamble or have sex or watch porn or whatever it is, that, that there's a flood of dopamine, shall we say, to brain centers, um, which then increase the present tense focus and make us more impulsive, make us more as all, it's all about now. It's not about later. That, that is delay discounting in a nutshell. It's all about now. Immediate rewards are worth a lot. Long-term rewards, like having a decent job and getting an education and money in the bank seem to be worth less. So it's just a kind of trick, you know, it's a kind of unfortunate <laughs> um, logical flaw of, of, the, of the mammalian brain. We overcome that with our prefrontal cortex quite often. You, you had uh, Ian McGilchrist on your, on your show. So, so um, I didn't listen to that one yet, but I've heard him in other podcasts and stuff, and I read his, his stuff, and he would tell you that, you know, your left prefrontal cortex is going to try to put all that in order and overcome those tendencies and make the best of it, and that's what his job is. That's all good. But in addiction, uh, those prefrontal areas start to shut down for various reasons, and, and that's, that's another reason why, why time itself changes its nature, changes, yeah, the way you think about time, I should say, changes. Very cool. I heard, I'm not sure if this is true or not, but I heard that you would, um, when your kids were young, you would say, right, um, we're at a restaurant here, um, I'll give you one mint now, um, oh, yeah. or you can have three mints later. And up until yeah. the age of like seven, they didn't, uh, they would always take the first mint, but then once they get a bit older and a bit wiser and the prefrontal cortex had developed a little bit more, they would take the three mints. Is yeah, that exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that was, was I would I would mention that often in, in talk. Where did you hear it? It was one of your talks. I'm not sure, not sure which one. Um, it, it brought it home to me that this is this is a real thing, you know. <laughs> we know this about little kids, but just it's kind of fascinating when you when you play that game with your own kids and saying that. Really? You really want one minute and a half instead of three, I mean, half an hour? Like, are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd, I'd like to ask you now, Mark, about uh, maybe some of the, the brain science here. You know, could we talk maybe about the ventral, v ventral striatum? Is that, is that the right, yeah. is that the right brainer? And the, what happens when people become addicted to that area and it's how it might be becomes disconnected from the prefrontal cortex? So the, stri the striatum, which is sometimes the, it's called the basal ganglia. Um, it's the, these are overlapping areas uh, um, are more primitive parts of the brain that are involved in action. And 
pushing us toward action. So they'll, they'll focus attention into a tight beam so that you know what you're going for. And uh, they also, the ventral striatum in particular motivates you. That feeling of desire or wanting seems to have an awful lot to do with the activation of that region in particular, that ancient. So, you know, when your dog is like wagging its tail like crazy to get to its food or whatever it is, that's, that's the area that's presumably lighting up. Whereas the prefrontal cortex obviously is capable of uh, judgment, perspective taking, decision making, weighing consequences and stuff like that. So we can often think of these areas as being, um, well, balancing with each other uh, or in competition with each other, depending on how you, how you want to put it. Well, in, in addiction, so people who follow the brain disease model say, well, look at all this action in the, in the striatum and uh, the ventral striatum, it's like it's being overwhelmed. There's all this activation and just changes in the dopamine receptors there and et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, this kind of proves that it's brain disease. And in fact, there's less activation in the prefrontal cortex. So doesn't that sound like a brain disease? Well, no, because you see the same thing when people are pursuing uh, all kinds of goals in business, in politics, uh, religious experiences, marriage, love, sex, all of these things tend to turn off the prefrontal cortex and turn on the striatum. And if that happens enough, then yeah, you get some cellular changes because that's how the brain operates. Yeah. Uh, something that's interesting as well is that, you, is it true that you see the same changes in the brain um, in a behavioral addiction that you would see in a substance addiction, like the same things happening? Is that yeah. is that right? It is right, yeah. So that's a big deal. And the, that's one of the nails in the coffin of the disease model. They used to say, and they said, for example, NIDA, the, the uh, National Institute on Drug Abuse, which is a huge part of the NIH, the National Institutes of Health in the US, which actually, anyway, anyway the National Institutes on Drug Abuse has been funding 80 to 90% of, of research on drug addiction all over the world incredibly influential. And they, up until really five or six years ago, they would say, well, yes, the drugs are actually destroying the brain. The drugs are toxifying the brain. And once it became clear that you would see similar changes in behavioral addictions like gambling, um, and even in eating disorders like binge eating disorder, you'd see very similar brain changes. They had to kind of drop that line of reasoning. It just didn't make sense anymore. It's not drugs. Drugs are not destroying the brain. There's something about addiction per se, um, and maybe it's not even about addiction, maybe it's just about desire or going after the same goals repetitively. And obviously you can think about that in term, in business as well and politics as well as, as addiction or shopping or whatever it is. Um, the idea that drugs are the problem became less and less uh, defensible. Okay. Um, well, I think this would be maybe a good point now to move to the next stage of the, the conversation, Mark. Um, you have spent the vast majority of your working life focusing on how we can better understand addiction and doing this through neuroscience and developmental psychology. But it seems now, like reading, reading your blog, that a big focus for you now, a big thing that you want to do is you want to actually help people um, you know, break free from addiction and you want to help people treat, treat addiction. And it seems that a method you've tried different things. I think you were, you trained as an act, you trained in acceptance and commitment therapy. You've done some mindfulness. 
Um, but your big focus now is internal family systems, which is developed by Dr. Richard Schwartz. Um, right. So could I'd be curious to ask, you know, why why is this such a powerful therapy for working with addiction and why what has what initially pulled you into it yeah sure i will um yeah by the way as you can probably see the sun is in my in my eyes <laughs> there is some sun here in, in uh, toronto not much but there's a little bit and it used to be coming right at me through the window but that's okay um it's actually nice so um yeah so you had you had richard schwartz on a, a few podcasts ago and I've, I've listened to his talks, I've read his books, and I, I've trained a fair bit in that, well, at least somewhat in, in IFS. Uh, I've used it with clients. I've been doing psychotherapy online with people in addiction uh, for about five years now, uh, mostly on Zoom. And nowadays, of course, that's almost the only way that people do psychotherapy any, anywhere. So it, it all works out. And I, I just love the model. I think it works so well for people with, with addiction. And the reason is because uh, the, first, the first step is, okay, it's not all just you. You have parts. <laughs> and that means that whatever you might consider to be uh, nasty behaviors that are stupid and ugly and you know, repulsive and all that stuff, it's not all of you that's doing that. It's a part of you. Well, that already helps. Like, oh, really? That's a problem. Well, yeah, you're right. Most of me doesn't want to do that at all. So, so that's a step forward. And in IFS, the, uh, they, they have several categories of parts that apply to most people. One of those categories is called, they call it the firefighter, um, which I don't know, did he talk about that with you? Um, I think he covered it. Yeah, it was, it was an introductory talk, um, but yeah, he would have brought it in. He, he probably did, yeah. Um, well, okay, there, there are parts that, that, a lot of the parts are what they call protectors. And all that means is that they're, let's say they came, they arose within your personality at different stages of your life when things were rough and they try to help you in different ways. Some of those parts they call managers because they're very uh, um, kind of business-like future oriented, you better not do this, you better not do that, you better you know, follow the rules, you better watch what you say and watch what you do, very much like a manager. Okay, that's one kind of self, uh, um, shall we say, protection. Uh, and, and, and you can find those parts and you can talk to them and you, they certainly talk to you. And then the other class of protectors they call firefighters, which is a funny kind of a term, but the they call it that because these parts are extremely impulsive and it's like they want to put out the fire and they don't care about making a mess so that's where that's where the name came from it's like you imagine the fire brigade comes out and sprays down the place and breaks it all up and puts out the fire then they leave right and they don't they don't give a shit about about leaving a mess well in addiction it's pretty obvious that the impulsive part is that kind of has that kind of psychology so to speak it, it cares. The fire that it's putting out is negative emotion. It's, it's normally anxiety. That's, that's the fire. That's what you, you want to put out by, by, with drugs or, or drink or whatever it is. Um, and this impulsive part says, yeah, let's do it. Let's get high. Come on. Let's get time. We know this is going to work. Let's just do it. Get rid of the anxiety right now. Come on. And you do it. And it's like, oh, shit, now what? You know, that's the next morning. And 
you're three hours late for work or whatever it is. And it's like, oh, you, you kind of fucked me up here. Uh, <laughs> and so the idea that these parts do have some kind of psychological independence, that they actually have little personalities of their own, starts to come into focus. And it's quite fascinating. I mean, I've now gone through this kind of therapy myself. So I, I know what it's like on both ends. Uh, and it's powerful stuff. Like, like you find a, a set of like wishes or ways of doing things or agendas that uh, have a very distinct character to them. Like when I, when I used to do drugs, it was very clear that I, it wasn't, I was taking huge risks, huge chances and really kind of almost wrecking my chances for any kind of future. And it didn't matter to me. It wasn't in my awareness at all, that aspect. So could really see how, uh, yeah. So that's all, that, that's basically it. That's, those are the two kinds of parts. That, and then of course, in addiction, one of the big problems, and, and IFS covers this beautifully as well, is that you go out and you drink too much or you get high or you do whatever you do. And then the manager comes out and says, you know, you jerk, you creep, you idiot, you did it again. How could you? And you know, there's a lot of internal anger and blame and shame and all that stuff, which raises the anxiety. In fact, that becomes the main source of anxiety. And so those, you get a feedback cycle. There's more anxiety. And the more you sort of feel the anxiety, the more you feel like doing it. And the more you feel like doing it, the more anxiety there is. And then you really feel like doing it, and then you do it. So it, it's a very neat psychological system. I was going to say metaphor, but I don't even think it's a metaphor. I think it's really just the way things work um, for understanding addiction and, and treating it. Cool. And one of the things I was reading in your blog as well is, you know, you there's a concept in IFS called the, the self, but it's a self with a capital S. And you make a distinction between that and just traditional mindfulness. So could you maybe tell us about the role that the, the self with a capital S might play in helping us with, with addiction? Yeah, that's, it, it's a little hard to put into words. Um, it, it has a lot in common with, I think, a place that we often go to in mindfulness meditation. It feels peaceful, accepting, um, empathic, uh, uh, compassionate, you know, it, it's kind of still, it's right there in the middle. Uh, emotions and thoughts come and go, you know, you let them kind of pass through it and it kind of, it kind of sits there and says, here I am. And, and IFS recognizes that there is such a place um, and it gives that place a role, not just to be there, not just to kind of evolve, but also to take care of parts that are in trouble, parts that are distressed. So, so there's the two kinds of parts that I mentioned, managers and firefighters, but there's a third kind of parts that uh, they call exiles. And those are usually much, usually very young parts that, that have really been hurt, like by you know harsh parenting or possibly abuse or neglect or trauma of any sort. And, shamed, often scared, uh, helpless, and they don't know what to do. They, they really, I mean, because they're young, they just don't know what to do. They don't know how to fix things. Uh, and they kind of rely on adults, but if adults are not around to help or are not helping for whatever reason, then they, they just kind of absorb all this 
pain and shame and, and fear. So, so that capital S self, its job is, so to speak, is to get in touch with these different parts and to, to, to nurse them, to soothe them, and to, to help them to feel better. So I'm here and I accept you and I know what you're feeling. And yes, that was really rough. And you don't have to keep feeling that because the world is different now. That's the way it would talk to the exiles, the young parts. Mm -hmm. And it's actually a dialogue. It's a kind of, a, <laughs> that's what's so weird about it. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's like you're having a, um, a discourse between two people, but it's actually two parts of yourself. So, so it's quite remarkable. And it's, uh, it can be very, very powerful. That's super interesting. So it's like other other branches of psychology and psychotherapy seem to think that, you know, this, th th there's a major problem in that uh, we are sort of divided from within and we've got all these kind of different parts to ourselves. And mm -hmm. it's, it seems like the goal is kind of to like, to get all the parts going in the same direction. Whereas in IFS, it's more that you just accept that you have all these different parts, parts that have been hurt um, at a younger age, whatever, and you're compassionate towards them, and yeah. yeah, compassion seems to be a big part of this as well. Is that yeah, fair to say? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's the main difference, you're right. And in, in IFS, you're not trying to fuse them together into one coherent personality. I mean, Schwartz's insight was that uh, the mind isn't that cohesive. It does consist of different, um, yeah. Okay, so, and when I was just doing pure neuroscience, pure cognitive neuroscience, I, I studied this stuff a fair bit. And sure enough, you know, it's, you can, you can see the brain as different operating systems. They're not, they're not identical at all. They don't necessarily work together. Sometimes they compete with each other. And each one has, you know, zillions of synaptic connections, they, which start to resonate the connections are formed because because neurons in various regions are, are um, becoming synchronized with each other, firing together, so to speak. And it kind of makes sense. Like, why would you think that all that stuff forms one coherent, you know, entity, which we just call the self? It, when you think about it, eh, well, yeah, yeah, that wasn't so sensible after all. <laughs> um, yeah, you see, I think another thing you said is that it has like an there's this is sort of design not designed by evolution but this is this comes from evolution that we have these different parts of our our psyche and a mix they had they had some kind of adaptive benefit is that right or am i getting that wrong no yeah for sure well i mean ian mcgillchrist who you had on the show was uh i mean he's he's famous for helping us understand the roles of the left versus the right cortex that's just one one division uh, it's really important, but it's only one. There's also divisions between the lobes, the frontal and the parietal and the, and, you know, and the temporal and the occipital, they all have different roles and the motor strip and there's always, and then that's all just cortex. There's all the parts underneath the cortex, this triatum and the amygdala and the thalamus and all these other, other parts. So, and the brain is so incredibly complex. Like it, it's not, those different regions are not in themselves necessarily they don't function independently on their own they connect up in various combinations so how did all that evolve well you know how evolution works whatever works evolves so, <laughs> right 
it's not necessarily neat. It can be quite messy, but if it works, it works. And then you have babies and then you, you know, there you go. hundred percent. Well, Mark, just a few questions like before we finish. Um, I'd be curious to ask if you could, if you could make a phone call to your younger self, say you're in your, in your twenties and you're, you're going through like a really, really dark time with addiction yeah. and you could make a phone call now to, to, to him, knowing what you now know, um, what would you say to him? Ah, good question. Difficult. Yeah. Because as I say, I've, I've been doing IFS therapy myself as a client and I, I, that's precisely what I've been kind of working on. And uh, one of the things, and it's, it, it really is about compassion. It's like, it wasn't your fault. It's not your fault. You're not bad. You're not evil. Um, yeah. A lot of people are mad at you. Yes, you've done some things that you shouldn't, but you know you did the best you can. You could. Uh, you couldn't find other ways to fix the problems, so you did. You did what you could. It's that that kind of message, and also maybe to say, guess what? <laughs> you lived. You lived to fight another day. <laughs> you lived. Uh, I mean, I'm really old now. I'm I just turned seventy. I'm super old, but I never thought I'd live this long. Uh, but like, you know, here I am and life is pretty good and uh, it's going to get better. And you don't have to stay in that world of, of pain and shame and frustration and being lost. You can keep growing and come to where I am here and, you know, things are pretty good now. So <laughs> don't give up. I think, I think an important thing to say, I'm not sure if this is the right number or not, but um. Is it like something like 85% of uh, addictions are people, people are able to give up addictions like 85% of the time. Is that the right statistic or is that, is that off? Um, I don't know what it is across different substances and things. There's people who have studied um, recovery for different drugs. For example, people who are real coke heads, real coke addicts, they, they'll they'll tend to stop on average in four years because like how long can you keep snorting coke, right? Whereas for for alcohol, it's more like twelve or fifteen years, maybe it's a lot longer, uh, for all kinds of reasons. But certainly, it's true that a majority recover for, from all addictions, unless of course they die, um, and that's uh, well that would go into the figuring of the majority. But I guess with opiates now, and especially with heroin mixed with fentanyl. There's a lot more overdose deaths. And so I don't know exactly what that does to the statistics for opiate use. But, but yes, most people, it's definitely a majority for all substances. Okay. Okay. Um, now, and you've. you've I think alcohol is actually huge. I mean, almost everybody gives up. If they're severe alcoholics, they almost always stop by the age of whatever, 40, 50, I mean, whatever it takes, they stop. Yeah. Um, there's something we've covered in this interview as well is just the importance of, you know, developing, um, actually I wrote down something you said, I thought was really powerful. It was, it was, a uh, treatment works by connecting empowerment to a sense of time. Could you maybe expand on that a bit and what, what you meant by, by that statement? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I thought of it as when you're in addiction, you're kind of locked into this present tense. And maybe one way out of it is to develop a sense of time that goes in both directions, both backwards and, and forwards. The backwards part is like what we just discussed, kind of like connecting with your younger self and figure out where this all came from. So you stop blaming yourself so much. You start to recognize that 
you did what you could and this is how it worked out and now you you know and then again that gives you kind of a forward thrust okay so that's what development's really all about it's just recognizing life as existing on a timeline um and the sense of the future of course is uh it doesn't all <laughs> this is not necessarily the last step here there's places to go things to do that can happen and you know you you keep working through this and you're gonna you're gonna move on and having faith in that having just a sense of uh of a bit of confidence that things are going to get better is really important it's a really important thing for for people who are stuck and lost in addiction so that that's that's pretty much that's the sense of it 100 okay so just one last question um you've wrote two great books on this subject uh memoirs of addicted brain and the biology of desire um and it seems that when you write these books, you you're weaving personal, you're, you're weaving narrative in with brain science, and this seems to be a very a very powerful way to communicate. And um, what I'd be curious to ask is how, as a culture, can we change the narrative around around addiction? Because at the minute, we I think there's just such a lack of awareness about what it actually is, what's going on, mm-hmm. and you've done a huge amount of work in, in trying to trying to change this, but what, what, how can we change this as a culture? Like what, how can we change the story around addiction? That, that's a really tough question. Um, I, I've given courses like on addiction and stuff and even, and say on the last day of the course, I would say to students, for example, well, in the Netherlands most recently. Uh, so tell me the truth. How many of you actually feel that, you know, that, you understand what addiction is and you could be an addict and your friends could be an addict versus like addicts are almost like a different species. And most people's, these are, you know, kids, I mean, I call them kids are 20, 21, 22. Uh, they still have this really strong sense that those people are different from us. They're not like us, they're, they're really screwed up. And, you know, it's kind of frustrating. How did, how did it get like that? Well, partly because it's, it's self-perpetuating. The more we as a society reject and isolate them, the more desperate and helpless they become, the more they don't really try to connect with the rest of society because it's not, there's no doors open, right? They're considered to be the separate species kind of. And so, um, yeah, and that's when the idea that addiction is a disease, something you know, pathological that happens to the person, that's when that idea really starts to feel correct. That there's something really wrong with you and I'm sorry that you got this problem. I'm really glad it's not me. <laughs> How do we change that? Like, well, I guess Johan Hari would be the expert on that one. The change comes from, first of all, just accepting and just trying to recognize the humanity in people who, even when they're quite, you know, bad shape and addiction and uh, allowing them to connect with other people. That happens in uh, 12-step groups. I mean, that's one of the good things about 12 steps. There's some things that might not be as good, but that's a good thing. Fellowship, uh, connection, um, and just, I guess just at the societal level, the sense of being forgiven. This is not evil. This is like desperate. When you put it like that, it changes right? It changes the perception. 100%.
Well, Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today and like just learn even a little yeah. bit about your work. It's it's incredible what you've done over the past the past few decades. So, you know, where can people after this conversation where where would you recommend people to go online? Um, I would say definitely buy the books, uh, the Biology of Desire and Memoirs of Addicted Brain. Um, where can they where can they buy them? And where's your website as well? Yeah, great. Um, you can buy those books anywhere on Amazon or wherever. Wherever else you go and buy books, they're, they're still in print and, and they're still selling quite well. Um, and my website is, uh, it's called Understanding Addiction. So if you Google Understanding Addiction, Mark Lewis, you will find it. Cool, cool. And if you're interested in learning more about the connection between IFS and addiction, Mark's just read a whole series of blog posts on the subject as well, which I highly re recommend checking out. Um, so yeah, that's all we've got time. Thank you. Yeah, and the blog is right there on the website. So it's, it's easy to just click on the blog and, um, I've covered an awful lot of aspects of addiction over the years. So that's been my most recent, but, uh, yeah, well, thanks Neil. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you and your, and your audience. It's, it's been great.